Amen. Just before we uh, turn to the Word, I would just uh, like to share with you a little bit about where we're going in the next uh, few weeks. Um, next Sunday, we're going to finish the book of James, and then we're going to begin Easter, the beginning of April. And I'm going to be speaking over the sort of the three Easter services uh, on the seven words of Jesus from the cross. The, the first uh, week we'll do, two weeks from today, we'll do the first four and then on Good Friday, we'll do a couple. And then on Easter Sunday, I want to preach the last words of Christ, which is, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And I want to talk in that message a little topically about the impact of the death of Jesus. And I want, to, I want it to be an evangelistic message. I want people to understand why we are so excited about the gospel so if you have friends, that would be the service to invite them, invite them to. I will do my best not to embarrass you, <laughs> but I'd encourage you that Sunday morning, invite your friends because we're going to be talking about the, the implications, the impact, the consequences of the resurrection of Jesus. Four big things. I haven't written the message yet, but I have an outline in my head that the Lord gave me a couple of nights ago as I was going to sleep, but... I want to preach this message, and Lord willing, by his grace, some people will come to place their faith and their trust in Jesus. So if you would uh, do your part, I'll do my part, and then we'll just ask the Holy Spirit to do his part, because it's ultimately up to him and to his grace. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to the passage that Matt read for us again. And I want to point out to you as we begin... That, the, that James refers to the coming of the Lord three times in this passage of scripture. In verse seven, he says to his readers, be patient therefore brothers, when you see that as brothers and sisters until the coming of the Lord. In verse eight, he says the coming of the Lord is at hand. And in verse nine, he says the judge is standing at, or if you, if you sort of add the preposition, right at the door is, is kind of like the, the way that the words are phrased. As I said last week, these verses communicate a sense of imminence, a sense of nearness, a sense of the close proximity of the coming of Christ. Now it's clear in the New Testament documents that there is a, a sense of impending coming, a sense that it's going to happen soon. A sense that the other shoe is about to drop, so to speak. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is we're, if we're going to be faithful to our study of the New Testament, what is this coming all about? And I explained it a little bit last week. Now, there's no question, if you read the New Testament, there is going to be a physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ at the end of time, he will destroy death, he will consummate history, he will judge the living and the dead, and he will usher in the eternal state. The Bible is absolutely, definitively clear about that. We, we looked at some passages last week, but there's another one that I'd like to read for you. It's from Acts chapter 1, verse 11. 
And it says this, the angels, Jesus has just been caught up into heaven, and the angels say to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is the promise of God to us, that one day the Lord Jesus will return. There will be the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and, and, and the Lord by his coming will consummate history. It will be a physical, visible return to earth. But the question is, is this the coming that James is speaking about in this passage of Scripture? And again, people debate this all the time. And I might be wrong. I haven't been wrong. I haven't been wrong this year. Have I, Cindy, yet? Not, no, I haven't been wrong this year. But I could be wrong. I'm not sure. But I, I think and this is just my take on it, I think that in this passage of Scripture, James is referring to the events that Jesus prophesied, the events that he predicted in what we call the Olivet Discourse. You can read the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24. And in that passage of Scripture, Jesus predicts certain things that at the moment when he predicted them would have seemed completely unbelievable, completely outlandish. He predicted that the Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, that it would be razed to the ground, that the temple would be destroyed, not one stone would be left upon another, that the Old Testament sacrificial system that had been practiced almost without interruption except for those 70 years, almost without interruption for 1,400 years, he predicted that it would come to an end. And without overstating it, I think this was absolutely in the forefront of the minds of the first century church. Christ had predicted it. Circumstances did not look like what Jesus had predicted would actually come to pass. But they believed that he was the Son of God. They believed that he was Israel's Messiah. And so they were trusting that what he said would actually come to fruition. Now, they were looking forward to this for a number of reasons. And I can't enumerate them all, but let me give you a couple. First, it would prove to the world once and for all that if you wanted to be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel, the only way to do that would be through the blood of Jesus, the final perfect sacrifice for sin. You see, when James wrote his book, the temple existed as a viable option for people if they wanted to be in covenantal relationship with God. But as the author of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 13, that had become obsolete and was about ready to disappear. Why? Well, because a perfect, final, ultimate sacrifice for sins had been offered in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now there are a group of Jews saying this, if you want to be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel, you don't need to go to the temple, you don't need to bring a sacrifice, you don't need to slaughter an animal because the Lord God of Israel has slaughtered his son on our behalf. And by simply trusting in him, you can be right with God. And so when James wrote this, there were two options. 
If you read the book of Hebrews, you can see and feel the tension. But it would, the coming of the Lord in 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem and end the sacrificial system, destroy the temple, would conclusively conclusively prove forever that the only way to God is through the shed blood of Jesus. But secondly, it would prove the credibility of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet, priest, and king. And what did he prophesy? Well, this is the essence of it. He had staked his reputation on it. Had it not happened, had Titus and the Roman legions not come in 70 AD and done what Jesus predicted 40 years before that they would do, Christianity would have died because its author, its source, would have been shown to be a fraud. But what happened? Against all expectation, against all expectation, suddenly in the middle of the Pax Romana, most peaceful time in the ancient world, there erupted this brutal war that culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, ended in 72 AD with the defeat of the Jews at Masada. And it proved to the world that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the son of God, the prophet of God, and he was credible. Thirdly, and I think most importantly for the people who are reading this letter from James in about 40, 42 AD, it would, it would usher in a time for them when their persecution at the hands of the Jews would come to an end. Now remember, and it's important to remember this, the Jews were being persecuted by Jews, not Romans. Now if you, later on, Acts chapter 10 and following, when the gospel started going to the Gentile world, if you were a Gentile and you refused to worship Caesar as God, if you refused to light a candle or make an offering or make a sacrifice to the Caesar God, then you can get in big trouble. But if you were Jewish, if you were Jewish, you had an exception. The only group in all of the Roman Empire that was allowed not to recognize that Caesar was God were the Jews. And for the first decades, many decades of the early church, the Romans saw this this issue between Christians and Jews in Judaism as a family feud. If you go to Acts chapter 18, for instance, you'll see the proconsul Gallio judging Paul. The Jews brought Gallio in Corinth, but brought Paul to Gallio and said, this guy's teaching all kinds of crazy things. And Gallio, the Roman proconsul, said, look, you guys figure this out. Essentially, this is an internecine conflict between brothers. You're all Jews, you go figure it out. This is about your law, work it out yourselves. Don't get the civil authorities involved. And so in some senses, the Apostle Paul, under the sovereign will of God, had carte blanche. He pulled his Jewish card all the time, even when he went to Jerusalem and and he was going to be killed, remember, near the end of Acts? 
He says, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection. And a bunch of Pharisees stand up and go, yeah, we believe in the resurrection too. You see, he's, the early church lived within that milieu. And, and, and in some respects, it gave great opportunity for the church to spread and grow within the Jewish context. But man, the Jews suffered at the hands of Jews. The persecution was brutal and violent. So, the coming of Jesus spiritually to fulfill what he said he would do, destroy Jerusalem, tear down the temple, end the sacrificial system, was a critical component in the prophetic clock of the ancient church. And that's why James speaks so much about patience as he gets near the end of the book. Be patient, be patient. Essentially, he's just saying this, Jesus is promised. We can trust what he says. He is credible. He is the son of the living God. He rose from the dead. Rest in what he has promised. He's good to his word. Be patient. The Lord has said it. He'll do it. Now, these early Christians had a long wait, probably about another 25 years before Titus and the Romans came and ultimately destroyed the city and the temple. And it would require a lot of patience. But we got to ask the question, how do we as 21st century Christians removed almost 2,000 years from the events that James is referencing here, how does this apply to us? Well, I think it's very simple. Like them, Jesus has made promises to us. Promises that he will come again. Promises that he will conclude history. Promises that he will judge the living and the dead. Promises that he will enter in, enter us into an eternal state. And those are promises that we are waiting for. We are watching for and waiting for the return of Christ. And so James gives three illustrations of patience in this passage of scripture to these first century Christians. And we can, we can apply them to our context very easily as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to end time. And the first one is the patience of the farmer. And before we begin, let me just pray and ask God's blessing on this study in this passage of scripture. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand this. I pray that you would give us a passion to live a life with the second coming of Jesus in the forefront of our thinking. That the reality, Lord, that you could break into time and history at any moment, would that reality temper and influence how we live today? Our values, our relationships, everything about us, Lord. And we ask that you would do that for the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. So he talks about the patience of the farmer. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So in Israel, there are early and late rains. So farmers would plant their crops in late September because the early rains would come in October and November. Those early rains would cause the seeds in the ground to germinate and give them a little bit of a boost and they would begin to grow. And then until the late rains arrived, there would be intermittent showers, but nothing of any great consequence. But then in about April of each year, the late rains would come, and they would cause the plants to grow strong and produce all kinds of fruit. And, and Luke is using, or James is using this as an illustration of patience. It was the pattern that these farmers anticipated, they trusted in. It happened year after year after year. And the point that James is making here is that these farmers can't hasten the process. They can't expedite it somehow. They can't speed it up. It is what it is. There are early rains and there are late rains. And we can't hurry God's reign. We must patiently wait for it to come and trust that it will. Now, that's the illustration that he's using. And the implication when you read the passage is that these people were not patiently waiting for the coming of the Lord. They were not patiently waiting for the Lord to do what he said he was going to do in the Olivet Discourse. And we know that because of the commands that James gives them. James' assumption is that the fact that Jesus is about to do something significant, his assumption is that because, James, because Jesus has done what he has done and he has made promises, that these people will be living in light of those promises. That the fact that Jesus has died and risen again and the fact that he has given them his word that he is going to end the sacrificial system and end their persecution should cause them, in James's thinking, to live in a particular way. But it's not. It's not. And so he gives them two commands. Let me explain. The first one is this. He says, establish your hearts. The word there means to... Strengthen or be resolute in your convictions. And what James is essentially saying to them is this. Let the fact that Jesus is coming, that he has made promises that he will fulfill, let that truth undergird, let it be foundational in your life and in your thinking. Let it underpin, let it root you, let it ground you. Let it be one of those things that is foundational in your life. In other words, let the truth that Jesus will come and fulfill his promise temper and influence how you live your life. Don't forget. Don't ignore. 
Don't trivialize the fact that Jesus is coming. Let it be foundational in your thinking. Let it be at the forefront of your minds. Now, clearly, they weren't doing that. And I think sometimes we don't live that way either. Too often we forget or we minimize or trivialize the fact that Jesus is coming again. We don't generally watch and wait for the coming of Christ. So many other things crowd in our thinking. So many other priorities. And we don't have established minds. We're not grounded by the fact that the most significant event in human history has happened. God became a man. Died, rose again. Saved us. And has now promised to consummate history one day. We tend not to allow that to be the underpinning of our lives. We know it's true. We agree with it theologically. We believe it. But does it really propel us? Is it, is it genuinely catalytic tomorrow morning when you get out of bed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is coming again, that how we live today is going to influence how we live then? Do we think about laying up treasure in heaven? Does it really temper, does it really influence how we choose to live our lives, how we choose to spend our money, how we invest his kingdom, his cause, his glory, his mission? Now, I know that we all know it, but does it ground us? Is it foundational for us? It wasn't for these people. Had it been, he would have not made that comment. He wouldn't have had to say, establish yourself. Think about it. Recognize what God's going to do. Let the fact that he's coming temper how you think. Control, control you. Motivate you. Inspire you. Too many times I live my life thinking that life will last forever. Too many times I live my life forgetting that how I live today has bearing, has influence, has significance in how I will live then. And it's unwise. And it's not an established heart. It's a divided heart. It's a compromised heart. It's a forgetful heart. If you flip over, you don't need to, but flip over to, if you do, 1 Peter's just next book over, 2.11. Peter's talking to people in very, very similar situations. Jewish people, people in persecution, people who are suffering, people who are struggling. And he says this to them, look, you got to learn to live like aliens, sojourners, exiles, strangers. We don't belong here. Like we're just passing through. This is just, like we said a couple of weeks ago, our lives are like a vapor. We're here and we're gone. So why be rooted here? 
We need to hold loosely to this world. That's the point that he's making. We're passing through. This world is fleeting. We live for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We live for eternity. Or do we? An established heart is a critical thing. But secondly, he says this, don't grumble against one another. Gosh, you think, where does that come from? What's that about? Interestingly, too, the word grumble here isn't a word that sort of, you know, um, describes open conflict between people. If you guys have a conflict, a fight, you know, you're, you know, you didn't do the dishes, well, you didn't shovel the driveway, you know, he's not talking about that at all, right? Not that Cindy and I ever have those kind of discussions, because she always shovels the driveway. (laughs) But this word really conveys a different idea. It's it's an internal, quiet, under your breath, groaning, sighing, muttering. It speaks about inner frustration. Quietly being resentful. Just bugged. I think what James is saying is here, look, he's saying don't stress the little things. Don't let the people in your life, don't let your husband, your wife, your children get under your skin. Don't let circumstances upset you or frustrate you. One of the symptoms of a Christian who has lost focus on the coming of Jesus, I think, is what, what James is saying, is that little things bug us. Little things get under our skin when they shouldn't. And so I've been trying to say to myself this week when I found myself getting upset about little things, I I, I sort of said to myself, is it going to matter in 100 years, Paul? Really? Is it going to matter in 100 years? So I'll tell you a story. This week happened to me. So my daughter Candace is over with my granddaughter, and Cindy's been going down to help once a week. And so Candace came because her husband had a business thing he was doing. And so Candace came. She stayed overnight. And we helped with the baby. That was Monday. Tuesday. No, it was Tuesday, wasn't it? I can't remember. No, it was Monday. So Tuesday, Candace wakes up and <laughs> she says, so mom, when are you coming to my place? And I, in my head, I'm thinking, well, we've just given you a night to help with the baby. You know, this baby needs a little bit of attention, right? <laughs> Gosh. And then you think about it. <laughs> Tomorrow, Wednesday, was my birthday. Oh, yeah. 60, 65 years on March the 15th, consistently, there had been somebody there when I woke up for my birthday. And Cindy said, Hun, do you, would you mind? I said, no, it's okay. But in, inside, I'm kind of like, oh. <laughs> And then I thought about my sermon. And I thought, is it going to matter in 100 years? Is it going to matter? No. No. No, there's so much that upsets us and frustrates us and gets under our skin and bugs us and causes our relationships to be unsettled. That just doesn't matter. 
And so what, what James is saying to these people is this. Focus on the big. Focus on, the, on what God's doing. Focus on the big realities. Because in 100 years, it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter. He's saying the Lord is already and is again about to turn the world upside down. So why nitpick? Why get upset about things that don't matter? Why stress the little things? This requires that we have a forbearing attitude. And the Bible talks about this all the time. Being forbearing. Just kind of water off the duck's back kind of attitude, right? We need to take the long perspective. And so what he's saying about the farmer is that we need to be patient. We need to patiently wait. We need to ground ourselves in the light of eternity. Let that be our focus. Live our lives in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. Secondly, he talks about the prophets, the patience of the prophets. And he illustrates the prophets in verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So we're moving from sort of living to now speaking. It's not just how we live our lives, but, but speaking. And he, and he uses the prophets to talk about persistent patience. As representatives of God, they spoke, and as a consequence of speaking for God, they suffered for God. But they did it with a steadfast patience. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament lived in very, very cir similar circumstances to these people in the first century. Think about Isaiah or Jeremiah as an example. Isaiah predicted the fall of Israel. Right? And that, that the Assyrians would come and, and bad things were going to happen. Jeremiah talked about the fall of Judah, that the Babylonians would come and bad things were going to happen. And it was not a popular message. Jeremiah illustrates it. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. People didn't listen to him. He began his ministry. He had a 40-year ministry thereabouts, same period of time as we're talking about here. And he prophesied from the time of Josiah until the end when the Babylonians came in 586. And people didn't want to hear what he had to say. They just weren't interested. Oh, Jeremiah again. Gosh, he's just such a downer. So he was beaten. He was put in the stocks. He was thrown in prison. When they finally got so sick of him, you know what they did? They lowered him into a cistern that had about two or three feet of mud in the bottom. And the Bible says that he sank into the mud. That's where, that's where they left him for the longest time. These, these guys weren't believed. Because frankly, what they were saying at the time they were saying it was Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And the same is true in the first century. What Jesus had predicted was unbelievable. Rome had established peace. The seas were at peace. Piracy had been eradicated. You could pretty much walk anywhere in the Roman Empire and be safe. The Pax Romana was a time of incredible peace. Like the ancient world had never, ever 
ever seen. And Jesus is talking about wars and armies and conflicts and, and all kinds. And it was just unbelievable. I think sometimes when we talk about the second coming of Jesus, people find it unbelievable. And when we talk about it, we talk about Jesus coming to rescue us and to judge sinners. The reaction to us is very similar to those Old Testament kings' reactions to the prophets. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. But our responsibility to patiently wait for the coming of Jesus is not only to live in the light of his coming, but to speak in the light of his coming. To speak boldly and clearly about the fact that God is coming to judge sin and sinners. We must be bold in our proclamation. So many times we don't want to offend. So many times we don't want to get people angry at us. So we just quietly go about our lives knowing that Jesus is coming back again, not to offer himself as a sacrifice of sin, but as Hebrews says, to judge. But we quietly fit into our corrupt and decaying world as if he will not come. And it's imperative if we honestly believe that Jesus is coming back and if we honestly believe that he is going to judge sinners, we must take the risk that the Old Testament prophets took and speak boldly about the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to judge sinners. Now, we shouldn't be rude or offensive or violent or insensitive, but we must be honest. We must be honest. We must speak truth to anyone who will listen because God hates sin. The wonderful thing about this is that when we speak about God's hatred for sin, we can't not speak about his love for sinners. When we speak about God's judgment for sin, we must speak about his judgment of Christ. When we speak about hell, we speak about heaven. When we speak about condemnation, we speak about hope. When we speak about judgment, we speak about grace. You see, it gives us an opportunity to share the gospel. Obviously, this isn't my notes because I just heard it this morning, but one of the young men who's going to be baptized, I don't know what service it is. We're having two baptisms this morning, but one of, these, one of the young men who was, was ministered to and saved in, in our uh, young adult ministry was recently converted. And Matt told us he spent the first 20 minutes weeping over his sin and the next 20 minutes rejoicing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive sinners. You see, this, this must be in our mouths. We must be willing to stand up. I know we're supposed to be inclusive. We're supposed to be tolerant. We're supposed to, you know, go along to get along and approve of everything and say everybody's blessed of God and everybody goes to heaven in the end. And we know that it's not true. 
And it's absolutely imperative that we are willing to open our mouths because Jesus is coming again to judge. And the only hope, the only hope that your neighbor, that your son, that your daughter, that your friends, the people you work with, the only hope that they have is Christ and the cross and the gospel. So if we honestly believe that Jesus is coming, if we honestly believe in the second coming of Christ, if we honestly believe that he is the son of God and that what he says is absolute truth, then we must speak as these prophets spoke. Because if we don't believe in God's impending judgment upon this world, we will be silent. We may affirm, we may say, oh yeah, I believe. But what we believe is determined by how we act, not by by what we profess. And again, we don't want to be rude, offensive, violent, insensitive. But if we believe that Jesus is coming again, we've got to speak up. And when we speak, we must share the gospel because the finished work of Calvary is the only hope for our lost, sinful world. Lastly, he talks about the patience of Job. And although he doesn't say patience, he uses a different word. He uses steadfastness. He says this in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't have time to tell you the story of Job. I think we know it. How Job suffered, not because of his unrighteousness, but because Satan wanted to test him. And Satan took him through all kinds of suffering. God said, you can can do anything you want to him except take his life. And he suffered. So James says to his readers with 20-20 insight, hindsight, You've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And looking back, we've read Job. We know that God is compassionate and merciful. God restored to Job all that he had lost. God blessed Job abundantly. But Job didn't know that while he was going through the suffering. He could not see that. All he knew was that he was suffering, that he was in great distress, and that he didn't deserve it. And that's exactly what these people are feeling and thinking. That's why James begins his book, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's all where they're suffering. Life is hard. We're living in privation. And all we have done is believe that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth because he rose from the dead. Like, I can't not believe. So why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? And that was Job's situation. His friends told him, you've done something to deserve this. Job knew, he knew that he hadn't. His wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And he responds by saying this, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Now why did he say that? Because if I had been in his situation, suffering the way that he was suffering, my inclination would be, Lord, get me off this planet. I don't want to be here anymore. 
Why did he say that? Well, in Job 19, verses 25 and 26, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end he will stand on the earth. You see, Job's eschatology allowed him to suffer well. Job's, Job's conviction that at one point in time, in the future, someday, there would be a Messiah and that he would make it right. He didn't know the circumstances. He, doesn't know what, he didn't know what we know, but he trusted. So James is saying to these folks here, don't forget how the story ends. Sometimes we suffer and we don't know why. And life is terribly difficult. It doesn't seem fair. It seems so wrong and so unjust. But God is just. He does not ignore our sufferings. Although he's not obligated to explain why we are going through it, one day, one day, when he stands on this earth, the answers that we, the questions that we wrestle with now will be answered. I visited my mom-in-law on Friday night. Uh, she is completely lost in Alzheimer's and has been struggling with this horrible disease for 10 years, longer, 15. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman loved the Lord, and there was just an empty shell left. And I was sitting there with my hand on her shoulder, and she's just skin and bone, but yet she's so swollen from retention of water, she can't walk anymore. And you know, it'd be easy to be angry, it'd be easy to be frustrated, it'd be easy to sort of say, this is wrong. Like, why, Lord? But I said to Cindy as we were leaving, I just said, I'm praying that the Lord comes and takes her soon. Because there's such a wonderful future in store for her. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered into any of our hearts those things that God has prepared for us, those of us who love him. So although we don't know, it doesn't make sense we can patiently wait for the coming of the Lord to take Mary home to be with himself, to right every wrong, to correct every injustice, to wipe away every tear. We can be patient. We don't know, don't understand, but we can trust and rest in the sovereign goodness of our great God who will one day make it all right. So be patient. Root yourself in the fact that Jesus is coming and don't stress the small stuff. Live in the light of his coming. Be bold and speak the truth as the prophets did. Speak the message of the gospel. Speak the message that God hates sin and so he sent his son. Easter is our opportunity. Let's share the message. Do it gently and graciously and lovingly, but let's not keep quiet. 
And even when we can't see the reason for the suffering that we are going through, we can be patient and we can trust because one day God will make it right. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the promises in your word. Every one of them is yes and amen. Every one of them we take to the bank. They are absolutely, completely secure. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to live in light of your promised return, to speak in light of your promised return, and to rest in our circumstances and in our suffering in light of your promised return, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.